This podcast episode is produced by the EdTech Podcast and supported by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the social impact centre of Salesforce, focused on partnering with the global community of changemakers. They provide access to powerful technology that empowers changemakers to build a better world. Salesforce.org's Education Cloud gives higher education institutions a single shared view of students, alumni and staff in an integrated CRM platform to create personalised experiences at scale, transforming learner engagements into lifelong relationships. Well, hello everyone and welcome to The Edge, Accelerating Higher Education, season two of our podcast series with Salesforce.org, where we take a fresh look at higher education and digital transformation. This week, we are in conversation with Professor David Maguire, who's the chair at JISC, and also the interim principal and vice chancellor at the University of Dundee. So I think we're really asking the wrong question. What we should be doing is how can we reinvent a learning and programming experience using modern technology to deliver the best learning and teaching outcomes in the most efficient way. Also in this week's episode, Corey Snow, who's the Director for Education Industry Solutions at Salesforce.org. That's digital transformation. And that's more than just adopting technology. It's largely about changing the mindset. And last but not least, Andy McGregor, Director of EdTech at JISC. We're entering into a period of quite interesting experimentation. We're chatting about a new sector framework to help you visualise where student expectations about your university are going and how you might provoke change to help you get there. There are tonnes of amazing resources in this episode and don't forget you can find the link to the digital strategy framework we are talking about via our show notes at theedtechpodcast.com. But before all that, thank you for listening in and thank you to listener Ikra Shaikh who got in touch to tell us about her recent binge listen to seven episodes of the EdTech podcast whilst driving to LA and back in one day, spending about a total of 10 hours on the road. So we're glad we kept you company, Ikra, and uh, hope you are very well. This is our last episode in the Edge series for 2020 and 2020 has certainly been a year of steep learning and we're wishing all of you a chance to take stock and have some time to rest and recover before our next episode in the series. We'll be back in 2021 to talk with more guests about recruitment and admissions and optimising university services. But for now, digital transformation. How do you actually get it done? Brilliant. So absolutely delighted to be here with this next episode of The Edge, uh, our podcast series on the EdTech podcast related to higher education. Uh, And today we're looking at digital transformation and in particular the digital strategy framework. So we're here to talk about some work that partners JISC, Emerge Education and Salesforce.org have been doing around digital strategy in higher education. Um, the work was started before the pandemic and led by David Maguire, um, who I'm delighted that we have here, um, who's Interim Principal and Vice-Chancellor at the University of Dundee, and Graham Galbraith, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Portsmouth. 
Um, and so, as I mentioned, we have David with us today, along with other guests being um, Andy and Corey from JISC and Salesforce.org, respectively. So what is the work that we're talking about? Well, it's a 2030 strategy framework for university leaders centered around four main themes. So we've got leadership, staff, business models uh, and investment. And for each theme, the goal has been to identify some of the questions that senior leaders can fruitfully ask themselves and their teams to identify some of the opportunities and gaps in their thinking about digital technology and its role in achieving their university's long-term strategic goals. And uh, what I rather like about this uh, framework is rather than provide um, some sort of ready-made answers, um, the team have looked instead at the implications of each question and suggested some resources, tools, and techniques that can be used by each team to find their own answers. Um, so we're going to spend the rest of this recording time, hopefully finding out some of those provocative questions and providing as much useful insight as we can to you, the listeners. So to kick off, we've talked a little bit about what the framework is. Um, I wondered if I might start by asking, um, you know, what you found out when you were researching the framework and if we think about those four main areas, so leadership, staff, business model uh, and investment. And perhaps, David, I could uh, ask you to tackle the leadership one, if you don't mind. Of course, um... Leadership is important in any industry, in any area, and it's crucially important in universities because uh, leaders are tasked with seeing the future, uh, shaping the strategy of organisation, and then carrying the organisation forward through a series of change processes. But digital is a little bit different because many of the people who lead universities are experts in research or teaching or engaging with the community, and few actually have got skills in uh, digital technologies and their application in tertiary education. So one of the things we've been encouraging uh, my fellow peers or university leaders to do is to learn about digital uh, technologies and services and data, and to figure out how they can factor that into their strategy. And I think some of that's about learning about these things, but it's also about ensuring on the top team you've got the necessary skill set to be able to um, understand the challenges in front of universities and to implement strategies which seek to, to address them. And there's a long way to go, but I think there's definitely interest brought on by the pandemic to think about these sorts of things. I love that honesty as well that, you know, um, among many sectors as well, that at their highest level, not not everyone does have those um, those skills. And I know in the framework report, um, one of the questions was, you know, what does the new digital team sort of look like in higher education? So what are those skill sets? And I wondered if there are any kind of recommendations around, you know, what that might look like and if it would be different to what's currently the sort of usual setup. The way the universities are typically organised in a top team is there's a chief executive, the vice chancellor or principal, called by various names, and then a series of deputies, sometimes called pro-vice chancellors or vice principals or vice presidents. And what I think needs to happen is that um, instead of those vice presidents, PVCs, being head of learning and teaching, head of research and enterprise, head of resources, we also need one who's the head of digital somebody actually on the top team at the top table needs to take on responsibility for, for that because 
the universities of the future won't just be about bricks and mortar. They won't just be about in-person teaching. They won't just be about in-person research, but they'll also be about online and digital research, teaching and learning. In fact, all, all activities. And the universities that will be successful 10 to 20 years from now are those that make the jump into virtual space. And, and how will that differ to the sort of existing CIO role that uh, people might be familiar with as well? In universities, CIO tends to be the next tier down, the sort of middle management head of IT uh, or head of library or sometimes a combined position. So it's the next level down. It's about saying, look, digital is not just a, a set of tools and a set of services it's a fundamental and critical part of a university strategy and it needs to be elevated up to a position where it can really make an impact and have a difference because these will be not operational tactical matters for universities they'll be strategic matters running right at the heart of what a university is and what a university does in the next decade and beyond. And David, whilst I'm, I'm chatting to you, so you've got the dual role of being sort of chair of JISC and then the role at Dundee. So how do you see some of those themes that came through the framework sort of applying at the University of Dundee as a sort of example of a university that you're very close with? I think Dundee would admit that it's been a follower rather than a leader in terms of uh, digital work. It certainly does have uh, digital and em- embedded in, in some of its ac- activities, but it wants to do more. So one of the things I've been working on actually just the last few weeks is a new digital strategy for the organisation about trying to understand where the university is now, and where it wants to be one, two, three, five years, 10 years, 10 years hence. So we're trying to really get to grips with, with all of that and to imagine the future and to um, put in place the infrastructure and the resources which are going to be necessary to realise that. The big market considerations for universities in the next decade are going to be about globalization and online. They're the two big frontiers for universities. And actually, what's quite interesting is if you think, how do you conquer the global frontier? Then the way you do that is not by building campuses overseas. It's about through through digital. So actually, those two things resolve down to one thing. You've got to plant your flag in the virtual world, and you've got to assemble a capability which allows universities to exploit its innate capability, its brand, uh, and its its current uh, systems and processes to to exploit that for the for the good of the institution. Andy and Corey, you've been listening in. Um, obviously, this is a collaborative uh, report, so I just wondered if anything David mentioned kind of resonated when you did the report. Anything that came out that sort of surprised you as well. In previous years, maybe even before the pandemic, digital often some universities get seen as an add-on. So you have a separate strategy to do with digital. I think one of the things the report strongly argues for and comes through strongly in what David said is that you can't just have digital off in a silo. It's got to be embedded throughout all the strategy of the university and everyone needs to take their part. Everyone needs to have those skills. I think that's one of the most powerful and difficult things the report argues for, but one of the things that's going to lead to the biggest change. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, David's sort of term bricks and mortar because I, I think of my my own son who's 20 and I used that term with him to describe uh, shopping the other day and he didn't know what it meant. That, that made no sense to him. I said, well, you know, because stores used to be these physical places where you go and there's those still exist. You know, from his perspective, it's all shopping. Um, and as a young learner, I think, you know, going forward, uh, students will increasingly just describe it all as learning and they'll be learning on different channels and in different modes. 
And the pandemic has really forced everybody in higher ed to think about what role the physical campus plays in education, in the learning experience, in providing all the wraparound services that enable students to be successful. Um, all of those things have had to be sort of questioned and, and reevaluated. And I'll, I'll even quote David while he's, while he's on the call, you know, talking about how we spend billions on buildings and only millions on IT. Um, that really you know, stuck with me having you know, worked at Harvard. We've got you know, lots of buildings with names on them and you know, they're lovely places. And um, you know, IT in, in higher ed in general is still often thought of as uh, more of a cost center you know, something that must be done to, you know, keep the lights on, uh, but not necessarily at the center of an institution's mission. And I think that we'll, we'll see as, you know, as David has predicted, we'll see that changing in an increasingly placeless world. So, I mean, I, I guess in terms of uh, the, the sort of provocative question approach of the framework, so how do universities move away from, you know, that being the reality of two cost centres going head to head and, you know, how do how do people listening in, how do they actually action some of this stuff as well? It's tempting to pit um, in-person or physical campuses versus online and a virtual infrastructure. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. These, these things need to run next to each other. A few universities are going to sell their campus and move totally online. One, one of the things I think is quite useful in IT circles is this, this concept called a digital twin, which is a digital replica of a real world system with uh, bi-directional um, near real-time communication between the two. And what I think current universities should be doing is thinking about what's their digital twin in the virtual world how do they create linked um, online versions of all their programs of their research laboratories and their facilities and to make it seamless for staff and students to move back and forth between um, those two worlds and, and that I think is a better way of, uh, of, of rationalizing and, and, and conceptualizing this in the future it's not all or nothing this should be seen as complementary yeah, I, th I think that's a really interesting point from David. I think it, it's not going to be either or. It's going to be uh, both, and it's going to be a mixture of both at the same time. I think we're entering into a period of, of quite interesting experimentation on this. So what works in terms of digital, what works in terms of physical, what works in the blend of two. You've got interesting things like Harvard Business School built a, a, a Zoom room. I think I, I can't remember the exact name for it, but they've got this le lecture theatre with lots of TV plays all over it and all linked up to the internet so that people can join remotely and in presence at the same time. And as a teacher, that's a new type of challenge, trying to teach in a way that, that doesn't preference the people physically and over the people who are coming in virtually. Um, they've just got a, a product that we worked with Westmont called a virtual classroom, a similar thing, allowing teachers to teach in a different way. And I think these new methods, modes of teaching are going to spring up and be experimented with quite rapidly over the next year or two. And it's going to be really interesting to see which emerge as the new um, most promising approaches. I think this is really interesting because um, you mentioned sort of what works and experimentation. And I think, you know, there's been all the fantastic um, enabling capabilities of online and connecting and continuing learning. But there have been some quite challenging um, parts of that experimentation as well this year so perhaps it's also about sort of ironing out some of the finer detail and culture around um you know actually what that means to learn online whether that's privacy of a lecturer wanting to 
you know, do their face-to-face teaching online, but you're, you happen to be in your bedroom, that's the only place you can do it. Or, you know, if you're having an online exam and you need to move away from the screen and some of the difficulties around that. Um, so do you have a sense of whether there'll also be a sort of swing back towards face-to-face? And with the longer-term implications of what you're doing with the framework, um, any um, ways that this will actually improve the online uh, or, or hybrid offer as well? Yes, I th- everybody you talk to thinks that online is really interesting, but not a perfect substitute uh, currently for in-person teaching. So everybody's pursuing the, the blended route. The blend differs, I think, quite a lot from area to area, from university to, to university. But it, to me, it's about getting the best elements of in-person, which is about that uh, the interaction, being able to read the body language, to deal with questions quickly, um, to generate the enthusiasm and the support for, for, for students, but also to mirror that with the best elements of uh, online. So it's really great to do um, simulations, to do a synthesis, to do things like quizzes, to get instantaneous feedback, to deal with people all around the world so they don't have to travel to campus and lots of other things as well. And I think the sweet spot is working out today for you, for your class, for your, for your programme. What's the best combination of those, those two things? Unfortunately, a lot of people have simply tried to automate their existing in-person lectures. So either by live broadcasting it using Zoom or, or Teams or, 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 or whatever it is, Blackboard Collaborate. And uh, not surprisingly, it's turned out to be not quite as good in all cases, because I think we're really asking the wrong question. What we should be doing is how can we reinvent a learning and programming experience using modern technology to deliver the best learning and teaching outcomes in the most efficient way? And for me, that's about breaking it up into smaller bite-sized pieces, about using experts to record those. It's about using interactivity. It's about personalizing the learning. It's about making it much more interactive. Uh, and, um, And so it goes on. And that's where the agenda, I think, should be. And that's the sort of questions that people should be asking and the experiments they should be undertaking. And, and Corey, we were talking about this before. So for the benefit of any listeners, um, could you let us know the difference between digitization, digitalization, and digital transformation? It's like a haiku. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and some of the things that David was saying align really well with this. And something Andy said align really well with this. So um, you know, Andy mentioned... Um, at Harvard, having these hybrid classrooms, and I, I happen to be on the a front line of that and that that whole transformation, uh, that was very different from the sort of COVID-imposed, we must go online situation. Um, that whole hybrid experience and those hybrid classrooms were designed from the ground up with that purpose in mind. That was a, a, it was significant investment. Um, every one of those classrooms needed an area for um, a whole new set of audio and visual equipment. There was a live uh, cameraman uh, in those uh, in those booths uh, that made it so that the folks who were participating virtually felt equally included to those who were in the physical classroom. Um, and you know I put a lot of credit towards that whole vision to our Dean of the Extension School, Hunt Lambert, who's an inspirer of, of mine. Um, who really saw the vision for that and a whole new way of learning 
And being more inclusive, uh, going back to, to David's point, being more inclusive of our entire global learning community. So uh, that was all done with, with a lot of purpose and a lot of care. Uh, but when we're talking about you know, digitization, that's more about taking things that are in their um, analog form and putting them in a digital mode. So if we think about the early era of the internet, um, if your business goes online, it might be something like putting a, an ad up uh, you know, on, the, on the page with an email address or something like that, uh, or creating um, versions of paper forms in a, a digital way, or um, PDFs, which are really just you know, printed versions in a digital mode. Um, and then over time, we've moved more towards digitalization, which has been largely about using technology to automate processes, reduce friction, increase efficiency, um, which has been very productive for society and our economy. But moving into digital transformation, this is really thinking about how we can use technology to provide stakeholder value. So thinking about stakeholders at the center and working back and saying, how can we provide value to our stakeholders in education that can be learners or staff uh, or, or instructors, but thinking about how, how they work, um, what would create the most optimal experience for them, how we can best engage with all of these stakeholders um, to enable them to do their best and, and create their best out in the world uh, for the long run. That's digital transformation. And that's more than just adopting technology. It's largely about changing the mindset, um, thinking about how digital is at the center of everything that, that, that we do. Technology is at the center um, of, of enabling this, but not, not at the center of the project. The stakeholder is at the center. How can we deploy technology to enable that? Thank you. Um we talked a little bit about leadership and staff at the beginning, just going back to your four main points in the, in, in the framework. So thinking about business models and investment as well, um, I, I've put here, um, now that a vaccine is in sight, which is fantastic news, um, is there some element of self-preservation where there's a risk that everything might retreat back again? So all of these kind of... Uh, fantastic progress that's been made in terms of people's understanding of online learning, their experience, their sort of skilling up in this area. Um, for those people that are listening in, if they're sort of sat in a boardroom environment and they are the person that was responsible for um, putting forward some of these 10-year plans and the investment required and the shift in mindset around sort of the business models, um, what kind of resources and tools would you equip them with to, to provide them courage in that moment to really push that forward and, and get that thing over the line? Andy, do you want to jump in? So I think there are some people who will um, be very keen to revert back to normal <laughs> the first time everyone's been vaccinated. But I think um, there will be people who also come through this experience with some uh, positive elements of the way their learning's been run during this time. We've had, uh, speaking to some students and some people in some universities, we've um, got anecdotal evidence that, that students quite like the personalisation aspect 
some of the way they're learning to done online in the way that they've been able to study at their own time and their own pace in their own way uh, suited their, their style and they felt they've actually enjoyed it more and got more out of it so I think that some to some extent students will be demanding greater flexibility greater innovation new models and new ways that fit with their lives new types of courses so I'm not sure that people will be able to just say right let's go straight back to normal there also may be quite an interesting um, effect on assessments. Obviously, assessments had to change the minute that the lockdown happened. And it'll be interesting to see whether students will be, what approach they'll want to see taken to assessments when they come back. Obviously, the universities are the, are the organisations who have set the assessments and, and other bodies, but students also have a say in this. And it'll be interesting to see what their attitude will be when the vaccine hits and the lockdown ends. David? We did explore that very question as part of the JISC Learning and Teaching Reimagined project, but we asked senior leaders how much of your teaching is currently in person versus online. And pre-COVID, it was about 15% online. During this current year, the lockdown period, it's gone up to as much as 65%, with actually, in terms of lectures, at least 90% of all lectures in the UK this year being delivered online. And then in uh, next year, 21-22, and out to 2030, people believe it will go back to about 40-45% of online, 55% in person. So that's a huge change, three times as much online as a consequence, partly of COVID. But remember, COVID really has brought on, I think, a much deeper, more fundamental, more profound change, which is um, moving to a degree of online learning. Absolutely, thank you. And 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 the investment side of things as well. So, uh, what what kind of conclusions or questions did the framework suggest were important for leaders to think about uh, regards investment in this area as well? We were really seeking to highlight the problem and get across to senior leaders that thinking about strategic investments, there ought to be some priority given to to the digital side of things. And given the increasing importance of, of, of digital data services technology in the future, then there needs to be a rebalancing of much greater investment in the digital uh, infrastructure to provide that and the, the digital skills, because they are at least as important as the, the technologies we found in our work. And were there any kind of insights around some of these lessons for sort of smaller and larger universities or those that are perhaps are more focused around uh, what would be a commuter student versus an international student? Well, one of the interesting things about the UK is that there's a it's a system uh, of uh, quite distinct and quite different universities, some small, some large, some art, some science, um, some residential, some commuter and, and so on. And I think digital will have a, have a different impact and provide different opportunities for all of those. And so I think it's for each university to, to determine what makes sense for its mission and its business plan. But I'm pretty clear that there isn't a university in the country which can't benefit from greater use of digital, digital thinking. I know the report primarily focused on teaching and learning, but I just wondered also whether there were any parts that were outside the remit of this report around digital with research and you know how universities may also want to think about that in the longer term. Absolutely, yes. So JISC has also had a parallel piece of work called Research 4.0, which attempted to look out and to imagine the, the future and, and what technology could do to transform both the process of doing research, but also the activities into which research. And then surprise, surprise, things like robotics and 
and AI and deep learning um, were all seen to be really important, as were tools to support greater collaboration and interdisciplinary research of of distributed uh, researchers, recognizing that you need to bring large teams together to try and resolve some of the most difficult and challenging problems that society faces. Andy? I was just going to add on to what David said there. I think one of the interesting parts of the Venn diagram of, of, of learning and teaching and research overlap in this report is in um, the issue of lab work and other work as part of teaching. Obviously, for subjects, so subjects like chemistry, physics, etc., it involves a lot of lab hours. And that's something which has been incredibly hard, if not impossible, to replicate during the pandemic. And that obviously overlaps strongly with the way researchers go about their, their day-to-day work. And I think that's been one of the things which hasn't really, as far as I'm aware, been solved during the pandemic. And I think that's something that is an area where we perhaps need to look at for greater innovation, for seeing how we can how we can address that issue, because I think we can't just leave it. <laughs> uh, we have to find ways, I think, to make so making some of those experiences virtual as well. Yeah, I know there's some fantastic tools out there for sort of lab simulation, but um, yeah, more of that, hopefully. Um, okay, so we've got a, f- a few minutes left. So I thought one thing that could be really interesting for people listening in is whether there were any sort of particular uh, university case studies that were part of the input into this framework that you really enjoyed finding out about their work and what they were up to and whether you'd like to share any of that. And uh, if, if it isn't that, if there's any kind of, any of the particular questions or tools and resources that you'd like to leave our listeners with as they mull over uh, this and hopefully go and read the full framework as well. I can talk about some of the really interesting things that we uncovered. So I think it's fair to say that there are some tremendous uh, innovations going on in learning and teaching research across uh, universities. Um, Not always necessarily what you might associate with the the big names and the big players. There's a lot of innovation going on throughout the sector. So Northampton um, University, for example, has got active blended learning on its new campus. It underpins 100% of its learning and, and, and teaching, got some new and novel ways of delivering that whether it's uh, police people training for apprentices or in um, classes in engineering and maths. Or we got some great stuff from Brighton uh, and the Sussex Medical School on streaming um, uh, operations and providing uh, anatomy classes to people across the the internet. Um, Some some interesting things in Imperial College in their master's programme um, a really intriguing platform for delivering wholly online MBAs. And they're doing some good work, I think, in terms of building 3D simulations and using VR and AR to, to look at uh, engineering uh, labs as, as, as well. We had um, Alejandro from uh, University of Northampton on the podcast before. So I'll definitely throw that episode in our show notes because it's a good listen to, to hear what they're up to there as well. Yeah, so David's covered nicely the the examples of interesting practice that was uncovered. I think um, in terms of other resources that people listening to this podcast might be interested in once they've read through this this long-term strategy framework. On the Just Learning and Teaching Reimagined site, there's also a set of visions for 2030. And it might be interesting to go through and read some of those. They've been written by a variety of people. David's written a really interesting one. Um, Just have written a few. And there's a few been written by startups and various experts in the sector. Mm. 
And it's worthwhile going to look at there, see what people think might happen by 2030 to, to accompany those questions. And one other thing worth a, a, a mention, I think, is there's a, a vision development toolkit was released alongside this long-term strategy framework, which includes lots of practical exercises you might want to do in developing your strategy, imagining the future, getting people on board with your strategy. And it may be if you want to take the plunge and really go through this digital transformation that Corey was talking about, maybe some of those techniques may be helpful. I love those visions and I, I look forward to recording a podcast in 2031 when we can look back and go which ones are right. I mean, out of any of those, can you remember any of those sort of potential scenarios that that people had jotted down? I can, I can, I can. I wrote one about the Highflex Plus University, which is shamefully stolen from Arizona State University and, and Southern New Hampshire University's practice, which is about taking the same course material and delivering it in a variety of different ways. So whether you use the same course material, you can deliver it online, you can deliver it face-to-face, or you can deliver it in some kind of hybrid work and learning environments. There's an interesting one about, um, I can't remember the name for it now, something like Phenom Learning, uh, which is about learning while doing so rather than learning a particular subject, you learn by taking on a project and you learn about all different subjects taken that way. There's um, a really good one written by um, someone from the Open University, which talks about the Higher Education Reform Act, the imagined Higher Education Reform Act and how that changed the university and leads to the breakdown of a three-year degree. There's a lot of different various approaches on there, really worth a scan. They're only short, but they're worth a, a read through. That's fantastic. Yeah, I got a bit addicted to Arizona State University's um, virtual campus updates on their campus reopening, which shows how sad I am, really. And uh, I listened to a podcast recently on Rousseau on education, and he even then was talking about learning by doing. Um, and then, Corey, do you, do you have something to add in as well? Well, I was excited about what David said earlier about uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. I think that um, when COVID hit and we're, everybody was sort of forced to virtualize learning, um, wet labs and, and project-based learning really you know, lit up as the gap, the thing that was very diff- difficult to virtualize because we di- didn't really have the technology on hand to enable that to happen. Uh, so you, there are definitely um, institutions that have a very project learning centric model. Uh, my son attends one, you know, very incredibly difficult to, to replace uh, the robotics laboratory, right, in, in a virtual setting. Um, but I think the technology actually does exist. It just has not really been applied. So if we think about where augmented and virtual reality has gone in terms of enabling um, amazing video games and things like that. I don't play video games, but I, you know, I've seen what's possible here. Uh, if we could you know, create learning experiences that were more along those lines and enabling you know, your virtual hands-on uh, capabilities, I think one of the things that we'll look back on is that the COVID era you know, really brought augmented and virtual reality out of the laboratory um, there is sort of millions of dollars in investment flowing into this technology now. Um, and, you know, really went from a, you know, why should I use this to, oh, wow, we really do need this. That I hope will unlock the potential for that technology to really change the world um, and enable, you know, a whole new model, maybe the way Andy was, was going towards of sort of ambient and continuous learning across what will be a much longer, you know, l- learning life cycle? Um, I think we could probably, you know, expect uh, 
with a you know hundred year life, we'll need more of a sort of sixty year curriculum, right? It won't just be about educating eighteen to twenty four year olds. If we need to enable folks to have digital skills, um, those have a very short lifespan mm. compared to the skills that we're used to acquiring. So, uh, you know, in a, in a reimagined learning mode, uh, we'll probably have learning across longer life cycles, um, continuous ambient learning. So, you know, sort of lower barriers to entry to get into the learning that, that um, individuals need to enable their, uh, their careers across a longer life cycle. So I'm really excited about, um, as much as COVID's put a lot of strains on, on the system, I'm really excited about the potential for the innovation that will be driven by this disruption. So last question then, what are you looking forward to, you know, when we can do the more face-to-face stuff? So what are you looking forward to? And not just face-to-face, but what are you looking forward to next year, I suppose? I think it's just actually seeing everybody again and being in the room with, with them and, um um, feeling the sort of warmth you get from friendship by being in close proximity to people, picking up on their body language, um, multiple people engaging in a conversation simultaneously. Because online, you've got to sort of serialize everything. Only one person talks at once, and you've got to wait patiently till the next person's finished and do things like that. So I think that's just human interaction more than anything else. Andy and Corey, how about you? My, my day job, I'm a, I'm a product manager, so we're always um, coming up with new ideas and so on. And um, I'm sure this will resonate with any other product managers listening, but I haven't touched a post-it note. I'm looking back to getting in an office and sticking post-it notes in the morning. I'll send you some. I'll send you some in the post if you like. You can <laughs> post the post-it notes. And Corey, how about yourself? I'm really looking forward to uh, going back to whiteboards. I, I like a whiteboard. Uh, you know, technology is fantastic, but the ability to uh, you know have have a group of folks together in the same space, collaborating on ideas with sticky notes and whiteboards, uh, you know, often does change the world. So, uh, you know, I, I look forward to a more digital future. Um, and I think being, you know, forced, forced into it in some ways makes us really reflect back and appreciate on uh, those things that are best done in person and the, the value that the in-person experience is offering Uh, where we never really had to think as much about that before. That's the end of this episode. I do hope you enjoyed. And if you did, make sure you drop us a quick review or rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. The algorithms do love it and the humans do too, I think. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and to Salesforce.org for supporting the series. You can also come back next time for a new episode on the subject of recruitment and admissions, which is sure to involve a lot of head scratching with a rapidly evolving and disparate assessment landscape wherever you happen to be listening in. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, go to theedtechpodcast.com or you can continue the conversation online at Podcast EdTech and at Salesforce.org. Bye-bye.